Valley for Public, and I'm joined today by Stephanie Wynn. Stephanie is a licensed marriage and family therapist, associate producer of the new documentary, No Way Back, The Reality of Gender-Affirming Care, which will play in AMC theaters for one day only on Wednesday, June 21st. And she's also a self-described D-trans advocate. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Good to be here, Maddie. Awesome. Well, Stephanie, if you just want to um, give us a little brief bio about yourself and the film, that would be wonderful. Sure. I've been a therapist for about 10 years, licensed seven, and in private practice for three. And a few years ago, I became very interested in understanding the issue of how our mental health field is conceptualizing and treating gender dysphoria because there's a lot that's really different from how we treat any other issue. And as soon as I began to learn about detransitioners, I realized that our field was responsible for great harm by buying into this idea that affirming a person's gender identity rather than exploring how they came to that conclusion about themselves is the right way to do to go that we were actually doing irrevocable harm to people so that inspired me to reach out to the detrans community and start learning everything i could i started blogging podcasting uh, my podcast by the way is you must be some kind of therapist and i don't just talk about detransition i also talk about the ideological capture of the counseling profession but other issues i find interesting as well um, so through doing this work, I got connected with the makers of the film, and I'm, I'm so delighted to be a part of this. No Way Back, The Reality of Gender Affirming Care is really the definitive documentary on detransition. I know a lot of people are doing great work in the filmmaking industry right now. Um, I've had the pleasure of speaking with other producers of related films, but ours really aims to take a compassionate and nuanced view, starting with the people who went through transing and detransitioning. And then, and then zooming out from there, talking to professionals, therapists, including myself, doctors, researchers, journalists, to understand how did we get here? Absolutely. And I think what something you said is so important is actually talking to detransitioners. Um, I know many of them, it's a, are, it's a rough, uh, they're having a rough go of it out there, um, you know, with, you uh, continuing to develop who they are, going through the detransitioning and desisting process. Um, and I've, I've spoken to many of them myself for a project that I've been working on. Um, and I find it so interesting. You know, every story and every individual story is different, but there are just some specific patterns and little flags that I see in almost every story, um, you know, having to do with uh, COVID, um, COVID, being online um, a lot, um, hitting puberty and, and feeling some discomfort when they hit puberty and, and all these factors uh, possibly making them think that they are supposed to be the opposite gender. Um, so, uh, and another thing, I, I actually watched the film several, I mean, maybe probably like two months ago. Um, and I found it to be so interesting to listen to the endocrinologist. His name is escaping me, Dr. William. William Malone. Malone, yes, um, because I, I think he he really spoke the truth when he was talking about what these hormones, these cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers can really do to the human body when everything that we are hearing and seeing and reading, um, you know, is, oh, everything is reversible. Um, 
everything can be reversed. If you're on puberty, puberty blockers and you decide not to continue with transition, don't worry. It, it's not going, it's reversible. Um, so, you know, I think that this is such an important film. Um, and, and can you just talk a little bit about, so it's in AMC theaters specifically for one day, correct? Correct. So June 21st at 4.30 okay. and 7.30 p.m. at select locations. Um, so you should be able to search AMC's website currently for No Way Back and find the listing. But it's my understanding that it won't be until about a week before the showing. So that would be June 14th that you should be able to find whether it's playing at a theater near you. I've already heard from people in my own Portland community who are disappointed that it's not playing here. Um, so we can't be in every major city, but we are going to be in a lot of places. And then after that, uh, global distribution online and in DVDs starting July 2nd. Okay. Wonderful. Um, so, you know, as you were working on this film, what are, what are some things that you, you just think are so important for people to know about it? Well, I think our film does a really good job of trying to make this not a left versus right issue because sadly it has become such a polarizing issue and um you know there are there are other films doing great work from sort of a right-wing angle but ours we we talk to people who are very left-leaning in their political views otherwise and um <clears throat> so you know debunking myths about the demographics of detransitioners and people who care about detransitioners. Um, we, we humanize our subjects, the detransitioners, by sharing their stories and their vulnerability going back to childhood and, uh, and debunking the myth that there is any consensus in the medical professional community or the mental health professional community that what is called gender affirming care is actually safe, effective, or medically necessary. Absolutely. Um, and often, you know, if, if, if someone is presenting or thinks they have gender dysphoria, they, the first step would be going to see someone like you, correct? Like a, a licensed family therapist to try well, and work through. I mean, wouldn't you think so? That would make the most yeah. sense, right? But, but this is, this is why I'm speaking out on this issue because what's happened to our field is that you have a hand, a handful of true believers Right? And so these are the people who might call themselves gender therapists or work in gender clinics or just be very pro-affirming and very, frankly, virtue signaling um, in their online presence. And so those are the people who are gung-ho about this idea that if someone says they're trans, you must believe them. Anything else is bigotry and you must support them on this path. And any questioning is bigotry. Right, So you have people who really believe that on one end of the spectrum. On the under, other end of the spectrum, you have people like me who operated according to many of those assumptions for a time in our career, but then looked a little deeper. And then I end up coming out and actually saying things publicly. So that means that, of course, I'm not working with this population because sadly, although there are people with gender dysphoria that I would love to be able to help, um, and, and gender dysphoria might just be a catchphrase. It might not actually be the right diagnosis. People who are questioning their gender identity that I might actually really be able to help because maybe what they're actually dealing with is feeling unsafe in their bodies because of sexual assault history 
or maybe what they're dealing with is internalized homophobia, or they need a proper diagnosis of their autism, right? There's so many things it could be, I would love to help. But unfortunately, I had to make a decision that I need to speak out about this publicly, which means I've been accused of doing so-called conversion therapy, which is something we can get into later if you want to. Um, but um, that's just me. I'm an exception because I'm a public figure. Now, in between, though, you would think that someone who's struggling with this should be able to go to any therapist and be met with competent care. But what you'll find is that you either have the true believers, right? You have, and then you have a lot of people in between who aren't sure. And many of them err on the side of caution by avoiding working with this population altogether. In fact, an article just came out, uh, I think it was in the Daily Caller, if I recall correctly, um, about this conversion therapy issue. And I've, I've had so many people reaching out to me about the conversion therapy bans lately. And so um, the sort of picture of therapy in the United States right now is that a lot of therapists simply won't work with minors anymore at all. Um, or they won't work with trans-identified people, they won't treat gender dysphoria, or anything like that because they're afraid of getting themselves into some kind of trouble or being out of their league. And so many people who are erring on the side of caution, though, um, end up referring people to gender clinics, right? So a lot of therapists know that those gender clinics are not providing ethical care, but then there are a lot of people who don't know that are just like, um, this is out of my wheelhouse. I don't really know how to treat gender dysphoria. I'm just going to send you the gender clinic. A lot of those people haven't realized yet what Julia Mason points out in our film and what I also realized uh, a few years ago as well. Is that anytime you send someone to a so-called gender clinic or so-called gender therapist, they are heading in one direction only. They're not going to be given a comprehensive biopsychosocial assessment. They're not going to be given a differential diagnosis. And they're not going to be offered the course of treatment that is the least invasive, the minimum necessary medical care. That's not what's going to happen. They're going to be affirmed and ushered down a path of lifelong medicalization. Yeah, I think it's like um, 90% of kids or adolescents who socially transition, which oftentimes could be a first step, they go on to, you know, do puberty puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and... It, it's almost like you can't stop the momentum from there. Um, I've talked to several detransitioners who, you know, no longer have breasts. They got double mastectomies um, because they were, you know, socially transitioned, put on the hormones, and then, it, it, you know, it all went downhill from there. So um, my question, I have a question for you is, how can parents find someone like you? Because I've also interviewed and spoken to so many parents who were just bewildered when their child who... Most of them, um, most of their children often had um, co-occurring mental health diagnoses such as autism, ADHD, um, BPD, you know, and they were so bewildered and they, they didn't know what to do. Um, and, and that, that uh, then started this path of reading everything they can about it, about the subject um, and, and, you know, just, just trying to figure out desperately what they can do to help their child. And, um, and I think it's difficult to find someone in the field like yourself who takes this, you know, different, least invasive approach. And as you said, you know, because of everything that's happening, many licensed therapists are avoiding the gender dysphoria subject altogether. So just for the parents out there, you know, is there a way to find a therapist who doesn't affirm right away? 
Right. So we're really talking about a couple of different issues. Is there a way to find a therapist for your kid? And then is there a way to find a therapist for yourself and maybe your family? Um, So what I do is I work with the parents. Um, So I work with parents as sort of a form of family therapy. I'll usually work with mom and dad, mom and stepdad, dad and stepmom, whatever, um, to help them think about their own mental stability and how they're handling this crisis with their family and how they can better understand and help their kid. Um, And it's going to be easier to find a therapist to work with you as a parent um, than it is to find a therapist who's going to work with your kid again, because these so-called conversion therapy bans, many of them apply to minors. Um, And of course, there's a myth around what conversion therapy is, which of course we can talk about. But as far as finding a a therapist for your kid, I would say, for for one, you need to understand the laws in your state. Um, So um, for example, Sasha Ayad is a well-known, well-respected therapist. Uh, she is the co-host of Gender Wetterlands podcast. I believe she's in Arizona. And the laws there are different. And so she's able to do gender exploratory therapy. Now, I, I think she has come under some scrutiny and faced some attacks. Um, but she's safer in Arizona than someone doing that here in Oregon. Now, I'm not saying therapists in Oregon shouldn't provide exploratory therapy. There's certainly a clinical defense, even if you do come under fire for it. And I want to encourage those therapists to do that work and to speak up. And if you want to consult with me as a therapist, I do have a consulting service. I'm happy to talk to other therapists about finding the courage to do this work and know that you can clinically defend all of your actions. Um, But knowing the laws in your state as a parent is going to help you navigate the system. And then you can look on genderexploratory.com. So that's a Gender Exploratory Therapy Association. You can look on conservativetherapists.com if you are conservative or looking for a therapist that is conservative. Um, Open Therapy Institute is just getting started. That's Andrew Hartz. I interviewed him on uh, an episode of my podcast. He's great. And they don't have a directory yet, but I am hopeful that they will be establishing a directory. Um, I know that GenSpec's Beyond Transition program is also going to be establishing a directory for detransitioners. Um, you can reach out to me. I do keep track of therapists who reach out to me about who they serve and where in the world. Um, and then uh, I know Sasha Ayad also offers like parent coaching resources and things like that. But if you're having a hard time finding a therapist for your kid, it might have to do, again, with the laws in your state, intimidating therapists out of doing exploratory therapy for fear that that could be labeled as conversion therapy, which is one reason that it's so important that the conversion therapy issue is coming to a head in the United States right now. And I would encourage you as a parent, if you've had trouble finding appropriate care for your kid, to reach out to your state representatives so that they are hearing that feedback from people with their boots on the ground about how hard it is to find appropriate care. Absolutely. Um, and, and you know, this is the perfect segue. Let's talk about conversion therapy. Um, can you talk about how you were accused of, of doing conversion therapy and, and how that all came about? Well, it's ridiculous because I, I was accused by anonymous people on Twitter who'd never met me <laughs> um, because I have a public presence that speaks about these issues. Um, and so basically 
within a few months of my getting on Twitter and blogging, I was on Substack at the time. Now my blog is housed on my website, sometherapist.com. But um, within a few months of emerging, a bunch of trans rights activists found me and sort of had this witch hunt mentality and threatened to report me to my board, made it very clear to me that that was what they're intending to do. And so I got ahead of the issue. I wrote a letter to my board. I believe that letter might still be on my blog, um, sort of letting them know, hey, these allegations are coming and here's what's up. And I didn't hear from them for a few months. Um, then one other thing happened. And this is that that was December 2021. And then February 2022, a parent came to one session of my parent support group. Every other parent in that parent support group had a positive experience. But this one parent, after attending one session, um, uh, sent me pages and pages of nasty emails, then said not to contact her, but then subscribed to my blog and left nasty comments on every single blog post and then found my resource list that I developed for parents and contacted people on my resource list to say that I was such a horrible person that they shouldn't even want to be on my resource list. So this type of behavior, I'm, you know, I'm almost glad that she went to those excesses because it makes you think, right? And it makes anyone with a psychological lens kind of wonder what's going on there. Um, but this parent attempted to discredit me and did take it to the board. She complained to the board as well. In her board complaint, she dragged another family into it. She said that she um, thought that I had mishandled a situation in which a family was discussing a delicate matter in the parent support group. Um, but that worked to my advantage as well because the investigator contacted that family and requested their records which I didn't even know an investigator could do. I'm like, this family didn't make a complaint. How do you have rights to the records? But he made it very clear that he is well within his right to do that. Um, but by dragging another family into it, that other family was able to say, we felt like Stephanie handled that situation perfectly well. We don't know what this person's talking about. So um, the charges ended up getting dismissed. Um, I mean, they're... I don't know if charges is even the correct term. Um, the investigation was dropped and I was not accused of um, violating any rules of the board, but it was scary. It lasted from um, April to August of um, last year. So, you know, that was a period of months of elevated stress and it contributed to my chronic illness. Um, I, I wouldn't recommend the experience, but I also do think that it's going to take some of us as therapists living through our worst fear and living to tell the tale in order to turn this tide. We've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.